The text for our sermon this afternoon is the doctrine of God's holy word as summarized and confessed in our Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 13, question and answer 34. You can find this on page 528 in the back of the book of praise. Just as context, um, in the catechism, we've started in Lord's Day 7. The question was asked, what must we believe in order to be saved? And the answer was, all that is written in the, our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith, as, as taught us in the Apostles' Creed. And now we are going through what the Apostles' Creed means, what we must believe in order to be saved. Lord's Day 13, question and answer 34. Why do you call him, that's Jesus, our Lord? Because he has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. So far the reading of the Catechism. invite you to keep your Bibles open. We'll be going through um, our, our scripture readings, especially from Proverbs 5. We'll refer to that throughout the sermon. Church of our Master Jesus Christ. It's not often, but every once in a while, a popular singer gets his, his lyrics just perfect. And Bob Dylan's song, Gotta Serve Somebody, is a good example. I'm not endorsing him, and I'm not endorsing the rest of his songs, but the lyrics of Gotta Serve Somebody, they capture a gospel truth just perfectly. Bob Dylan, he sings, you may be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor, they may call you chief but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Romans 6 verse 16 states this truth in this way. Romans 6 says, You are slaves of the one whom you obey. And here's your options. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of righteousness, which leads to obedience. In other words, Romans 6 verse 16 is saying that there is no option of self-service. We are not autonomous, but each one of us must serve someone or something. What is so sad is that most of Satan's prisoners are convinced that they are actually free. But in reality, the very sin that they think is an expression of their freedom that very sin, in fact, enslaves them. And Satan, he loves to lead his captives deeper and deeper into sin and, and all of its resulting misery. The gospel, the gospel message that we will hear this afternoon is that Jesus has paid the ransom price to buy his people back from slavery to sin, back from slavery to Satan, to make us his own possession. 
So congregation, at the end of this sermon, I am going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you, who are you going to serve? Because it might be the devil, or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That is the theme for our sermon, and we'll see, first of all, we'll see what it means, what it looks like to serve the devil. And secondly, we will also see the joy and also the high calling it is to serve Christ. So first of all, what does it look like to serve the devil? As we begin, we should first define some terms. Question 34, it asks, why do you call him our Lord? Now the word Lord, it simply means master, boss, owner. In the Old Testament, sometimes your Bibles will have the word Lord with all capital letters. This refers to God's personal name, Yahweh. And that is not what our catechism is referring to. But other times in the Old Testament, you'll see Lord written with a capital L and then a lowercase O-R-D. And that's what our catechism is referring to. That is the, the version of Lord, which means master. Now, if you turn with me again in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5, we'll see what happens when we serve the wrong master. Serving sin and Satan, it comes at a terrible cost. Proverbs 5, it describes sexual sin, but the same lessons that we will learn applies to serving sin in general. Sin, it, it promises so much. You see sin's seductive promise in verse 3. It says that the lips of a forbidden woman, they drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. It sounds good, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? In Old Testament times, honey was considered to be the gold standard of sweetness. They knew nothing sweeter than honey. And honey was rare enough that people actually considered it to be a luxury item. So when God promised his people a land flowing with milk and honey, he was promising a delightful land, a place where rare and exotic luxuries would be enjoyed. Now Proverbs 5 verse 3, it says that the lips of the adulterous woman drip with honey. She promises something sweet, something pleasing, something rare, something enticing. And it also says in verse 3 that her speech is smoother than oil. Now in the Bible, oil symbolizes gladness and prosperity. Proverbs 21 verse 20, it compares oil with, with precious treasure. So basically, this forbidden woman, she is promising something worthwhile. She is as sweet and delightful as honey. She's as valuable as treasure. Why? Why wouldn't you listen to her offer? But here's the question. Does she deliver? Does sin ever deliver the happiness that it promises? In the words of Romans 6 verse 21, what fruit, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Indeed, congregation, what fruit, what benefit What reward do you receive from sin? 
Does sin ever deliver what it promises? Proverbs 5 verse 4, it gives the answer. It says, in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. You see, the adulterous woman, along with sin in general, it, it tastes sweet at the start, but sin, it turns bitter in your mouth. And wormwood, it not only tastes bitter, but often in the Bible, wormwood is described next to and along with, with poison. Wormwood, like sin, is deadly. Now, if that's not enough to keep you away, Proverbs 5, it also says that the forbidden woman is as sharp as a two-edged sword. And this description, it teaches us two different things about sin. Because, because a two-edged sword, you take a two-edged sword and it, and it cuts both ways. There's no movement without damage. And it teaches us, congregation, that there is no way to entertain sin without getting hurt. But the two-edged sword, it also has another meaning because the Hebrew behind this phrase, sharp as a two-edged sword, this two-edged sword is, is literally translated out of the Hebrew as a sword with, with two mouths. Two mouths. Just like the forbidden woman. Her mouth drips honey. She, she promises pleasure. But she only talks out of that side of, the mouth, of her mouth when she is sucking you in. She talks out of the other side of her mouth when she is delivering. Sin is like a box of, of, of trick chocolates. Chocolate on the outside, but, but lemon juice or, or even poison on the inside. It seems sweet when you start, but sin never delivers what it promises. But for some reason, for some reason, that initial taste of honey, that, that initial pleasurable taste of sin, it is so hard to forget, is it not, brothers and sisters? So many people go back for more. And the sin which originally promised so much pleasure, it has now become a trap. Proverbs 5 verse 22, it says that the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. You see, sin, it promises freedom, but in reality, it is the very thing that entraps you. Your sin is the very cord restricting you from freedom, from joy, from life. Do you not know that you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Think of the sin of lying. The first time someone lies, he may be horrified. The second time, he is only somewhat shaken. The third time, lying, it seems far more natural. Finally, sin has him in its grasp. It becomes second nature. And for other sins, the, the story is similar. Some people are enslaved to their work. Their one abiding allegiance in life is the job. And there they live out their, their slavish obedience. Others are enslaved to possessions. All their waking thoughts are dedicated to caring for what they own or, or for pursuing, pursuing more. Others are enslaved to sinful addictions that dominate their existence. For example, congregation, think of, 
Think of the sexual sin which, which Proverbs 5 is describing. What happens when a man or, let's be honest, a woman too, it's, it's, not, it's not uncommon. What happens when a man or a woman starts down the road of pornography? The image, the, the description, it offers so much. It promises pleasure, forbidden pleasure, valuable pleasure like honey, like oil. But after you are finished, it leaves a bitter taste in your mouth. It tastes sweet at first. There was some pleasure, but, but at the end, it leaves you feeling dirty and ashamed. You're left feeling afraid and alone. But you can't quite forget about that initial sweetness, can you? The promise of sin, it keeps, keeps pulling you back for more and more and more until the cords of sin have entrapped you. More time, more money, more fear, more effort to cover it up. Sin always demands more. It entraps you. In Proverbs 5 verse 9, it describes this. It describes how sin always demands more. It says in verse 9 that you will give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Sin and Satan are merciless masters. They'll take you further than you want to go. They'll demand more of you than you are willing to give. And rather than bringing life, they'll reduce you to death. They will take everything. Look at verse 11. At the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. Sin, it takes everything. Ultimately, it will take your life. Proverbs 5, verse 23, it says that the person entrapped in sin, that he ultimately, that he dies for lack of discipline. He is like a, a rabbit caught in a snare. The rabbit is, snuck, is stuck. Slowly the snare becomes, becomes tighter and tighter, making it difficult to breathe. And then death. Romans 6 verse 23, it says that the wages of sin is death. That's right, the masters sin and Satan, they pay wages. They pay wages to their servants. Death. The wages of sin is death. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. Paul doesn't specify because sin kills in every way possible. But Paul does make it clear that death is merited. The slaves of sin, they receive the exact wages, the exact penalty that their sins deserve. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. God cannot be mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from that flesh reap corruption. So dear brothers and sisters, do not present yourselves as slaves to sin. Lest you be, do not present yourself to sin lest you become slaves of sin. Can you scoop coals into your lap and not be burned? Then how can you possibly play with the fires of hell and not expect to be hurt? 
Brothers and sisters, sin is not an expression of freedom, but of slavery. It will burn you. So flee from sin. Learn to abhor it. Satan and sin, they are cruel taskmasters. They keep you coming back. They they offer little bits of honey, little bits of pleasure, but it's mixed with wormwood, with shame and regret. And slowly but surely, you become completely entangled. Do you not think that Satan and his demons, that they take great delight in watching people, especially watching God's covenant children become entrapped in sin? Creation, why submit yourself to such a cruel master, a master who, who enjoys watching, watching misery as the result of bondage. Flee from sin. But what do we do? What do we do when we already feel that that noose of sin tightening around our throats? What What do I do if I'm already entrapped in the snare of sin? Well, congregation, the answer is is simple. By faith, we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. Last week in Devon, we saw how we saw Jesus being led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. But Jesus did not offer himself as, as we so often do, as a slave to sin, as a slave to Satan. Instead, Jesus faithfully resisted Satan's temptations, no matter how enticing they may have been. Instead of obeying Satan as his master, Jesus always perfectly obeyed his heavenly Father. Jesus perfectly submitted his will to God's will. Jesus never served the wrong master. And because of Christ's perfect obedience, he is qualified to be our Savior. He is qualified to go to the cross. And because Jesus shed his precious blood on the cross, he has indeed freed all those who look to him in faith. He has freed all of us from the power of the devil to make us his own possession. Congregation, we no longer need to serve the cruel masters, sin and Satan. As Paul says in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Brothers and sisters, Jesus died so that our old sinful natures might also die with him. Yes, the dying of our old nature, it it still takes time. Often we can be discouraged by by how alive that sinful nature still is, how it it continues to root, rear up its ugly head. But congregation, take heart, because Scripture says that Christ has struck the death blow to our sinful natures. We are free. By faith in Christ, we are free of the lordship of sin. And now we are raised with Christ to begin serving him as our Lord. So as you are fighting against 
sin, as you, as you feel the pull, the lure of sin, continue to fix your eyes on Christ. It is in Christ, by fixing your mind on Christ, that we find freedom. This brings us to our second point. Rather than serving the devil, let us fix our eyes on Christ and serve him. Congregation, sometimes when I talk with with Christians, I get the sense that they think that Christ can be their Savior, but, but not be their Lord. That is impossible. It is impossible for Christ to be our Savior and not be our Lord. Because the blood Jesus saved us with is the same blood that he bought us with. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 to 19, it says that we are ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And therefore, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, therefore you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So honor God with your body. You are not your own. In other words, if Jesus' blood has saved you, His blood has also bought you. For Jesus to be your Savior means that he is also your Lord, your Master. The confession, Jesus is Lord, is the decisive commitment that someone makes when he becomes a Christian. It is the decisive commitment that that makes someone a Christian or not. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3, it says that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, brothers and sisters, there's something to to learn from this. When when someone wishes to make public profession of their faith, either our our youth or or somebody that is new to the faith, when somebody wishes to make public profession of faith, this needs to be the starting point in our discussion. Is Jesus your Lord? The fourth vow of the profession of faith form says, do you firmly resolve to commit your whole life to the Lord's service? Service comes from servants, which means that Jesus is Lord. Now, congregation, I want to emphasize this because there seems to be some confusion here, not not only in broader Christianity, but also within our own federation. R.C. Sproul, he put it this way, "Sometimes, sometimes new converts, they miss the significance of Christ's lordship, mainly because it is not explained to them clearly. We need to be careful and thorough when we teach new believers. Being a Christian means that our our allegiance has changed. We are serving a new master, a new Lord. Now for the confession, Jesus is Lord to be meaningful, it must also be backed up by actions. Jesus himself, he asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you do not do what I say? And again, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven except the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If Jesus is your Lord, that means that you are also making an effort to listen to the Master's voice. Of course, we're not able to do this perfectly, 
But for Jesus to be Lord means that we are listening. The general direction of our life means that we are listening and trying to serve and please a new master. And congregation, Jesus claims lordship in every area of our lives. When I choose who to date, when I choose which car to buy or or which house to buy, how to invest my money, is Jesus Lord? That is a question we need to ask. Am I serving Christ with the decision that I am making? Or is something else Lord in my life? Some of the men in our church were recently discussing what it means for Jesus to be Lord. And it started when one of the brothers shared a conversation that he had with a coworker at work. His coworker asked him, what would you do if someone has a, a gun to the, the head of your wife or child and demands that you deny Christ? Otherwise, he will pull the trigger. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll ask you, what, what would you do if you were ever in this scenario? Would you deny your Savior? Or would you stay faithful and watch your loved one die? This is not a a hypothetical question for many, many Christians who are persecuted around this world. It is a real question also for many Muslims, even here in North America. Muslims who convert to Christ. Perhaps even worse than watching their loved ones die, they often face the consequences of having their loved ones ostracize and, and, and shun them and no longer having anything to do with them. You see, the ancient church father, Polycarp, he, he faced a similar question of, of the Lord, what the lordship of Christ means in his life. Polycarp's friends, they found out that the Roman authorities were about to arrest him. And so they urged Polycarp to flee. But Polycarp is, is found, and, and the Roman proconsul, he threatens to kill him if he does not recant his faith. Polycarp refuses, and the, the proconsul, he insists again, take the oath and I shall resist or release you. Curse Christ. Polycarp responds, 86 years I have served him. Never, not once has he done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who has saved me? And so Polycarp was burned alive. You see, congregation, Polycarp understood what it means for Jesus to be Lord. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross, and congregation, you know what a cross is, right? You, you die on a cross. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Creation for Jesus to be Lord means total allegiance. Obedience to Christ comes first. We cannot be his disciples unless we are ready to renounce all that we have. Christ being your master, it comes at a price. But brothers and sisters, it is the most wonderful price to pay. Because this master, unlike the previous masters, this master, he loves us. 
Satan, he abuses his servants, his slaves. Remember how Satan, he he enjoys watching humans wallow in the misery of their sin, watching them go ever deeper, plunging themselves into misery as as, as the cords of sin entangle them. But not Jesus. Jesus loves his servants. Congregation, there was nothing compelling Jesus to hang on the cross and endure God's wrath against our sins. No, Christ did this because he loves us. He wanted to set us free from the slavery of Satan. You see, if you, if you want to buy something at the store or at an auction, what you are willing to pay for an item, it shows how much you value it. Jesus is suffering. His shed blood on the cross, the, the, the wrath of God which he suffered, it shows how valuable, how precious his servants are to him. Congregation, Jesus is a loving, a compassionate master. And our master treats us well. Think of those slaves in the Old Testament who are allowed to go free. They were allowed to go free, but they willingly decided that they wanted to stay with their master. This is a foreshadowing of the most benevolent master, King Jesus. Because which, which self-respecting master, brothers and sisters, which self-respecting master would come home to his servants, dress himself for service, tell his servants to, to recline at table and then, and then go into the kitchen, make supper and come out and wait on his servants? It is a rhetorical question that Jesus asks because the answer is obviously no one, no master in his right mind in the New Testament times would ever think of doing this. But Jesus does. This is what Jesus promises to us, his servants, in Luke chapter 12. He promises to serve his servants. He promises to wait on his servants while they dine. And congregation... Which self-respecting master would wash the feet of his disciples? You probably remember that story of Jesus in the upper room with his 12 disciples. All those proud disciples unwilling to to stoop down to humble themselves and and to do that, that dirty, gross job of washing the stinky feet of their fellow disciples. But Jesus, he takes on the servant's robe. He humbles himself and he washes the feet of his own disciples. Jesus is a loving and a compassionate master. He cares for our needs. Congregation, it is, it is good to be the slave of Christ. And unlike sin and Satan, Jesus does not pay wages. Sin and Satan pay wages, you remember, death. But Jesus, Jesus, he gives free, unmerited gifts to all who serve him. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even now, our master is busy preparing rooms for us in heaven. And when he returns, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious heavenly body. Then the sting of death will be removed. 
and our masters will make us to be lords with him, under him, in heaven. One day our master will return and speak these words, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Master Jesus has an eternity of joy and heavenly glory in store for us, his servants. It is good to serve Jesus. So congregation, choose this day who you will serve. Do not leave here without making up your mind. We have seen that no human is autonomous. Nobody can serve himself. Each one of us must serve something or or serve someone. You can serve the devil or you can serve the Lord, but you've got to serve someone. If you choose to serve sin and Satan, you will be the servant, the slave of a cruel taskmaster. He promises much pleasure, but he never delivers. Rather, he only leads you into bondage, and the result is death. But while service to Jesus is also costly, Jesus is a gracious master who gives rich, heavenly, eternal gifts to us, his servants. Do you not know that you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness and life. So who will you serve this day? May each of us answer with the words of Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. In thankfulness and in praise to our Master and our Lord Jesus, let us sing from Psalm 116, the verses 7, 9, and 10.